Welcome to Take Flight, where we give you the marketing and leadership tools you need to take your brand and your business to new heights. I'm Sean Sitters, and I'm excited to be joined by someone I kind of used to work for, Alec McNair. I may have been kind of farther down the org chart uh, whenever Alec and I worked for an agency in Los Angeles called McBeard, but it always stuck with me how he really made me feel like I worked directly alongside him. Alec and his co-founder, Alan, founded and sold their own agency. And as you'll see, there's plenty of stories to go around about their experience. I hope you find a lot of value from this conversation. Let's dive in. Alec, so excited to have you and what a pleasure it is for me to just get to spend the next 30 to 45 minutes talking to you. I never really thought it would be the case that I would even be like in the same life stage and or have similar experiences as you. And here I am trying to just emulate what you so successfully created, although I know it was <laughs> not easy. So anyways, welcome and glad to have you. You're, you're in the Founders Club. Thank you. Well, I, I'm not sure if that's a privilege or a heartache, one of the two, but... <laughs> Bit of both. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I definitely no, mostly feel... Mostly the first. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that 100%. Well, a lot of people who are listening to this probably will... Well, maybe half the people who listen will know who you are. And then there's another portion of our network who don't know who you are. So I'd love to just get a a quick intro going so people can kind of gather some of your context. Sure. Well, I spent most of my 20s post-college living two lives. I figured out how to do what I do in air quotes, online things. Everything that was post building websites, but pre-social media. So uh, broadcast email and early blog content and just anything that was kind of digital marketing. That's what I did for a day job for most of my, most of my 20s. And at night, I was pursuing the entertainment business. I was trying to figure out, do I want to be an actor? Do I want to be a writer? Do I want to be a producer? Do I want to be a director? All of those things. And so all of that coalesced into doing things like studying at the Groundlings, which is one of the big improv theaters in the country here in Los Angeles. I studied Shakespeare in London for a summer. I sold a pilot script to ABC in 2007, which turned out to be a little bit of a backhanded compliment because they were scouting new online talent, new writers on this new website, youtube.com, so that they could bring in non-union talent ahead of the 2007 writer strike. But we didn't know that at the time. We, me and my, uh, my writing partner, Bob Gustafson, we just were high-fiving it because ABC wanted to talk to us. We're like, oh, we can go have a meeting at the Disney company? Oh man, we're awesome. And so but I, I, I spent all my time trying to figure out how do I fit into the entertainment business? And all that coalesced when Alan and I got back together when we should have been doing kind of boring traditional copywriting work uh, as kind of co-freelancers on a project. And we made a book, uh, well, we made a website called Historical Tweets which was essentially history jokes told through the lens of, again, this new site, Twitter, um, which was new at the time in 2009. And uh, we made a WordPress blog out of that and then just set one to post every day for 10 weeks. And essentially, after a couple of months of doing that, we had three and a half million people visit that website in one weekend. And out of that, we got a book agent. And then within a month, we had a book deal with Random House. And within six months, we had a book in shelves at Barnes and Nobles and places all over the country. I have a copy in my yeah. in my office at home, actually. <laughs> now, I have flipped through that book recently. I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I'm like, ooh, some of these jokes do not hold up in 2023. <laughs> 
but there's a lot of juvenile. Like my favorite one is a guy who invented Morse code. He, we, we did Morse code in the thing. So you have to actually go and look up what he's saying on Twitter. And all it is, is I farted. It's so stupid. But that, you know, that experience became the calling card for our partnership, Alan's and mine. Mm-hmm. And then we would roll in and have meetings with people just to talk creative things. And we would say, hey, and here's our book, which, you know, acted like a $14 business card that that, that Random Mouse printed for us. And it was, it was a legitimizer. And that turned into a couple of gigs with Nokia. And then ultimately, the one that really sent us down the path to create McBeard was 20th Century Fox. And so we did one of the first ever social media campaigns for movies. And, and that was intense. And that was in 2010. And then we had you know, some ups and downs early going, but eventually once we hit our traction in like 2012, we grew from just the two of us to about 150 people by the time 2015 rolled around. And that's just about the time you showed up. I was, and that's I we, was employee number 150, if you can believe it or not. Oh, really? I, oh, there you go. I really was. Now, did you show up after we had been acquired or before? I showed up the first, the first week that we were in the full screen offices. Oh, so like July, 2015. Yes, it was, I think, Maybe, maybe it was August, but it was right. It was right when you guys started. I remember joining. I'll never forget. Mela Hoffbeck was leading my onboarding and it was like this authenticity of like, we kind of don't know what we're doing, but we also know exactly what we're doing all at the same time. And then you walked into the room and then you said the same thing <laughs> or something like it. And yeah. I, that's really stuck with me because you guys weren't faking it. You were living it. And we were definitely the experts in a very particular area. And it, I definitely felt that. But simultaneously, it felt so human in a way that, well, one felt like it resonated with me in the moment. But then also, if anybody knows anything about McBeard and or the McBeard group that joined full screen and then grew from there. There is a community of people that exist today that talk about their time in McBeard as if it were yesterday and or as if they're still in it. And it feels very different than anything I've ever been a part of. And truthfully, it really represents what it's like my main inspiration for what I'm trying to create from a culture perspective here at Mallard. And so anyways, that's my piece of the of the equation or my side of the coin, rather in terms of what my experience was like joining what you just talked about. Oh, that's great. I really appreciate that. I, the thing that comes to mind that I probably said to you that day was my Jenga tower analogy, where our organization and the fact we were only focused on social media, which changed so fast and still does, mm. is that all the rules changed all the time. Mm. And so I said, I'm sorry if what I'm about to say to you is a surprise, but this is how this place runs. It's like we're building the Jenga tower and every six weeks we have to knock it down and start again. That's so good. I feel that right now in my own business. Well, that's but... what I was going to ask is like, so you've been running your own shop for three, four years now? Yeah, three, almost three years. The way I've kind of put it, and, and I think somebody else may have said this to me before, is it's like I'm flying a refrigerator, but simultaneously while I'm at 30,000 feet in said refrigerator, I'm trying to turn it into an airplane. <laughs> And uh, that's, that's pretty much how it feels because it's like you got to stay, you got to stay up there and elevate yourself and operate at a at a high level. But simultaneously, you're like, I, this is literally a refrigerator that I'm flying. Yeah. The thing I think we did a good job of was it this it wasn't by planning. It just it's what happened. And then in in retrospect, I think we did a good job of articulating this is that we were very clear on both the the high level 
and the, well, the surface level and the beneath the surface level on why people hired us. You've probably heard this a number of times, our speech about what we would give in pitches. I mean, you just got out of a pitch. Our pitch was so easy during that time. The list of things we don't do is quite long. We don't do websites. We don't mm. do banner ads. We don't do billboards. We don't do print ads. We don't do out of home. We don't do TV spots. We don't do, we don't do, we don't do, we don't do, don't do. If you want those things, go mm. somewhere else because there's great places that do that. Right. We don't do that at all. But if mm. you want great daily social media creative and community management, we're the best in town. Other places, and this is true at the time, it's not so, so much true now, but every other agency, this is what we say, every other agency you talk to, um, they put their best people on the most profitable projects. And that mm. is those high touch TV spots, Super Bowl ads, whatever. And their worst people, their beginners, they put on social media. Totally. But us, all of our best people think 24 seven about social media. Mm. And we are all aligned to make that thing great. Mm. Now, I think that's the surface level. And that pitch was really easy because if you wanted the best, you'd kick yourself if you didn't hire the best at this thing that you really wanted to go well. And so that was kind of a good psychological mm. way of approaching it. But the, the undercurrent was um, a massive amount of trustworthiness. Mm. Like if there's one thing about our collective culture is that we could be trusted to do the right thing and to be a help to clients in ways they didn't even know to ask. This friendliness, kindness type thing. Some of that I attribute to, you know, I know you're not a Pepperdine guy, but, uh, you know, Alan and I both went to Pepperdine, something mm -hmm. crazy like. I wish I went to Pepperdine. I wish. I know. Well, I mean, it's, it's a, there's a lot of positives about it, but yeah, at, at its best, Pepperdine attracts and makes alumni people that kind of have this good mix of assertiveness, wanting to do great work, but extreme friendliness and service-minded folks. Mm -hmm. Because we hired so many Pepperdine people to start, that DNA was kind of imprinted at the beginning. And, and I attribute a ton of our success to kind of co-opting some of that Pepperdine culture, even though it was a, it was a thing that made people like yourself a little annoyed. Oh, great. Another Pepperdine reference. Thanks. Do we have more of that? So I feel more of an outsider here. I always felt welcome, but it also was kind of like a, man, I wish I could have been developed like I am today for the last, you know, six or seven years, you know, in school. Although I am thankful for my for my own college experience at APU, but which sure. is about as close as you can get. Just it just happens to be in Azusa as opposed to you know Malibu, which is a little different. I'm just kind of thinking about your conversation around really just niching down so so far into social. And at the time, that made you very very different. It made your pitch very very easy. I find myself and I in a lot of the businesses that I talk to, there's this conversation about but. 30% of my revenue right now comes from th uh, things other than what you're telling me to niche down to. Or like, do you really think there's enough of a market for that? Like, these are the typical questions that would come up whenever you talk about a business who maybe started as a generalist and is now listening to this podcast and or having other experiences that are encouraging them towards at least considering niching down. What would you say to somebody like that in the current ecosystem and kind of how would you navigate that in order to create business viability, but also create the ecosystem for potential, you know, success beyond what the current potential is? Yeah, I just think about it in terms of choice. Hmm. The people that hire you and hire any agency, they have lots of choice about who they go to. 
if they're if they have a, a certain amount of money in the market, there is an endless number of people that can stand up and take it. Yeah. And so the question becomes, how do you become top of mind or synonymous with the best of a specific pain hmm. that people feel that you can be an incredible answer to? Hmm. There's two quotes, and I hate like doing quotes, but there's two quotes that kind of stand out in my mind. One is Kevin Kelly, who was the you know founding editor of Wired, and, and I've listened to a couple of interviews with, of him recently. And he says, don't try to be the best, be the only, right? Be the only option for this thing. Hmm. You know, for us, just being social media was enough to be the only at the time. And it's right. not enough, of course. Right. Not, not only are, are all of our former McBeard people off at other agencies doing, taking their skills with them, but there's thousands of other creative agencies. By the time, you know, by the time you came around in 2016, 2017, we were big enough that we could handle the scale of social media projects. We had so many people, so much expertise and all that. But there were lots of like three, four people agencies that we competed with that stole business from us because they could be more nimble right. in quote general social media projects. Mm. But I think the the way to, you know, to win is is to get more niche. You know, I know uh, there's that agency movers and shakers that just like start, it was kind of like, oh, talked about now. But I remember seeing them at the very beginning. And they're just like TikTok dance like creators, right? And that's what they they that's what they built an agency out of. Now the world, mm. just like it moved for us, it moved toward oh, we actually need a lot of that, please. And so mm. that niche became very important. And so a lot of people are going to companies like that. But, but yeah, you want to be the 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 one group that's super synonymous with the thing that um, not everybody wants, mm. but someone really is going to need and is willing to pay top dollar for. Because you don't want to be just like, oh, you're one of 16 agencies that can all do the same thing. So that's a, that's a race to the bottom. Right. You know, you're going to, you're going to say, oh, you're going to get undercut by cost. And you're like, oh, well, I want this project. And so, well, this other group can do it for 10K. Well, I'll do it for 8K. Well, I'll do it for 6K. And then you're losing money on every project. Like that's totally. the thing you don't want. Right. The more you can specialize and be the only option for people is from a, you know, from a negotiating standpoint is the leverage you need to actually make money on your expertise. Hmm. But related, the quote that I really like is Hugh McLeod, writer that I really started following in the 2000s. And he wrote a book called Ignore Everybody. Uh, and his quote is, what is it? It's don't just stand out from the crowd, avoid crowds altogether. Hmm. So it's the same, it's the same idea. It's hmm. like, you, you don't want to be one of, you know, one of 50 agencies. You want to be one of one. Yeah. And the more you can be one of one, especially with how the internet shares information. If you were limited to like Dallas, Texas, well, this mm -hmm. wouldn't work for you right. because there's only a limited number of people who could hire you. Mm -hmm. But if you're really exposed to the full world mm -hmm. or even just the whole United States, well, you can find lots of different people who need nichier and nichier things. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing you got to lean into. Definitely. I think, I think what happens a lot of the time is that, well, a couple of different things. One, at least in my experience, you're either dealing with you're dealing with a really opportunistic entrepreneur who yeah. sees opportunity in everything that they do and they can't sure. help but productize th that opportunity or at least try to do so. And so that's just like a constant battle for that type of person, that visionary, if you will, to like just stop and, and, and recognize and decide to double down on one thing. And then the other side of the equation is when there's almost like too many people involved where it can be like, okay, well, this business started as a niche and now we're getting almost distracted because of 
all these new ideas that are coming from more of like the scale of how many people are now a part of our ecosystem. Sure. And so how, how did you navigate that in the McBeard context? Because you went from like basically, you know, you and Alan to 150 employees in how long? I mean, really like three and a half years. That is insane. Well, I, I, my struggles are nothing compared to <laughs> That's crazy. So how did, like in the midst of bringing all these new voices and like pe people are complicated, it just is what it is. I mean, this is uh, part of the fun part of business and also the hard part of business is, is that this particular element of having people come into the fold can be difficult. So how did you remain so committed like practically speaking, how like how did you and how did you and Alan really stay so committed to social? Was it just because that's where the opportunities just continued to come from, and it was almost natural in a sense? Or what type of disciplines did you have to build up in yourself to stay committed? I would say the thing that we again the thing that we did right in retrospect was we just didn't get swayed by opportunities that we couldn't be the best at. I mean, and that's not to say we didn't do a couple of things here and there. I mean, every now and then we did banner ads and we were terrible at it. I mean, we made a couple of websites during that time and we were terrible at it. Hmm. We just didn't have that skill set. We, we tried our hands pre-acquisition at buying media and we were terrible at it. Hmm. And so I, in some ways we were lucky is that, that the thing we were really, really, really good at, which is a, between Alan and myself, a sense of, um, incredible creativity and copywriting mm. and a good enough design eye and the combination and really good strategy. Cause Alan and I are both like very strong strategy, like, Hey, our gut feels that people, you know, we think we're going to do this or that, mm. that really worked. I mentioned our very first campaign we ever did for uh, a movie was this movie called vampires suck. Do you remember that movie? I don't, I don't, but I've heard you talk about it before. You don't have the Blu-ray at home. I mean, you know, as much as I wanted to hold on to it. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, it was a, it was a parody of Twilight mm. and we got hired in to run, you know, run the social media for this movie. And this is 2010. I mean, there was, there was only barely pages that you could like, because prior to that, it was just personal profiles. Right. And so this movie, they'd set up a, a page, which was totally novel on, on Facebook. And they said, Hey, we'd love for you to work on this, on this movie. It comes out in eight weeks and we'd love for this page to have a hundred thousand likes and really followers, but at the time it was likes. And there's one problem. The entire movie has already leaked online. I mean, I remember the, the, the deadline, the, the deadline.com headline when the trailer came out was vampire suck trailer joins entire film online. <laughs> it's so brutal. And, and their original strategy for us was hey, we really think this is for guys and people who hate Twilight, their wives and their girlfriends and their sisters. They all made them like go to Twilight and this is for them to dunk on Twilight. Hmm. And so we got in there and we looked around for a while. We made a couple of things and we said, you know what? Like, we actually think this is for people who love Twilight. Hmm. Just like it's, you know, it's like the, in your family, if you love something, you can make fun of it. But if someone else makes fun of it, no way. Hmm. Or, or a sibling or whatever. Uh, and so we said, hey, what if we just made this a celebration of Twilight? And yes, we're making fun of it, but it's for the fans of Twilight. And they said, did you see our note about the entire movie being leaked online? Go for it, you know? <laughs> and so they really let us do whatever we want, which was amazing. And, and that just insight in how actual human beings think about media, what brand means to them, what IP means to them, what characters mean to them 
instead of it just being this logic, well, this is for boys and boys hate Twilight. And so boys will like hate, love to hate this thing, which, which didn't work at all. But the human condition that we saw, which was ultimately just strategy, mm. was to do the opposite. And so that movie came out eight weeks later and we had 800,000 followers on, on the Facebook page. And that was the thing that set us off down the path. And so mm. to answer your question, more, more social media projects came our, came our way because we were the best at this thing. It became well known that like, hey, if you want to do so, this new thing, social media, you got to hire these guys. Their instincts are right. They've just hired on new designers. They, they're great writers and you'll love what you get out of it. And of course, to our, what was the benefit for us at the time was that we had the sales groups of Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Snapchat, all through those years saying, hey, if you hire McBeard, they spend more money with us. And so they would just invite us to pitches and say, hey, the, just hire these guys on the side and then spend money on our platforms. Wow. And so we had those people doing sales for us. And so that's how we grew really quickly. It's so interesting to hear like the, the, whole, the whole backstory and now finding myself in, in, a, in a different ecos marketing ecosystem, right? Sure. Like a different era of, of marketing. But the core truths, I, I feel, you know, like actually feel them remaining the same. You know, earlier today, I was meeting with my team and we were talking about in full transparency, how, like what are we best at here at Mallard? And that answer might appear like, or for us, at least initially, it appeared to be really obvious. But as soon as the fourth person said the 17th service line, I was like, I wonder if actually we're like we we were talking about how we're niching down towards a specific customer yeah. and and how maybe that's not quite enough. Instead, you know, really thinking about what are what service are we best at and for what customer, not one yeah. or the other. And I think that in my experience, at least in working with McBeer, there was definitely brands that we worked with, but there were like a lot of entertainment clients, a lot of entertainment yeah. clients. Some of my favorite clients ever. No offense to any of my current clients, but the, but but those were some of the well, just just most fulfilling projects for us. And I think it's because there was so much trust in what we were doing. And I right. think that's because of what you were talking about, niching down to a specific service, and in a lot of cases, a specific customer base. And so I feel that even today in my discussions, and that's actually a discussion that we had here at our agency today. And I know that a lot of business owners listen to this podcast. Sure. This is not just a marketing agency thing. This is something that applies to every single business out there. And I would encourage you to at least have the discussion and also really pay attention to what the market's telling you in regards to where you're best utilized and what yeah. you're really, really best at doing. Yeah, I'm doing this writing course right now called Rite of Passage. You ever seen mm -hmm. that? Have you heard about it or seen did, it? Did you post about it recently? I or? Did. I, okay, I, I and that's where I saw it. <laughs> It's really great. The content of it, I'd say, is mostly really good to good. Uh, the, the Not nitpicking. There's just a lot of things in there that I've, I've seen around the internet because I consume things on the internet. That's fine. The, the gold of it is, is the interpersonal stuff of like meeting people and the support and the structure of writing mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And so there's that, that to me is well worth it. But there's this one exercise that we did that I thought I just thought of. I, I did it for myself and myself as a writer. But I wonder if, if people could do it for their business. Hmm. And the question, the prompt was very simple. I even posted about it. That's where you saw it. It mm -hmm. was, what does your head want you to write about? What does your heart want you to write about? And what does your wallet want you to write about? Mm -hmm. And so there's a logic. And, and what I found for myself during that exercise is that I had spent the last 10 years of my career 
really focused on my head, my head and my wallet being connected. The mm. logic of like, oh, this is an opportunity. I like this thing. This is strategy. This is proper business person stuff. Those things were very connected at, to the detriment of the connection of what my heart wants to write about mm. and taking that to my wallet and saying, well, what do I actually feel passionate about? And what do I love? What's me, you know, in a nutshell? Hmm. And so how do I get those three things working? And, and the reason, so I wonder if that would be interesting for your team to go through just to say, Definitely. hey, let's do that exercise. Because the other thing that's true is this, um, sometimes you have things that come your way that are just not worth it. I mean, there's, there is such a thing as bad revenue. Mm -hmm. We, we early days, I like, I think I told you this joke last time we talked, but I mean, early days at McBeard, I, I, I make the joke that I would kick a puppy for like a $2,000 gig because we just needed the money and we had people totally. paid for and like, oh, we do a, a home entertainment campaign for eight grand for three months. Yeah, great. Let's, let's just stack it on people. But you know, as well as anyone that mm -hmm. if you're in the service business, is it better to have just using round numbers, one, $1 million client or mm -hmm. 10 $100,000 clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel that all the time because early on in my in my business, what I ended up saying was there's no th such thing as bad revenue, which in in retrospect, right, it, it sounds foolish. But at, in the time, I think what I was trying to represent was this grit, you know, like we're going to go there. We're going to work this hard in order to in order to build this thing. But if maybe that's a, applicable for like month two, month three, <laughs> once you get to a place to where you've kind of just become even generically viable as a business, you have to kick that habit so fast because yeah. truthfully it can, it, it can and has, and I'm sure you would share in this, just talking about the websites and, and banners that you, that we built yeah. back in the day that there's, there's just areas that you can get into that you just shouldn't, you know? And so Anyways, well, think about it this way. I, I've never even thought of this analogy, but I did just now. If you're starving, mm. there's no such thing as bad food. But the moment you're no longer starving and you have a little bit of sustenance and consistency, well, then there is such a thing as some food is better than other food for you. Mm -hmm. And the same thing's true of revenue. Totally. Yeah, that makes total sense. One of my curiosities about just you and your trajectory and what and the whole McBeard story, which I know we've only touched on really the kind of, well, very, very briefly, or the early days building up to potential acquisition. But now you're multiple years removed from that experience. You yep. have had the experience of being a founder, then being an executive in an acquired company, and then gone on to do additional things thereafter. What do you find yourself reflecting back on the most personally? Just what are the thing, what are the main lessons and or things that you ponder the most about that particular season of your life? Well, now we're really going to get into it, my man. That is the thing that has been for the last couple of months life-changing for me to really be honest with myself about hmm. the last eight years. Hmm. At some point in the McBeard era, both maybe around acquisition, maybe before, or maybe a little bit after, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where. I lost me in the process hmm. and I allowed ex external expectations of me real or made up to tell me who I needed to be. Hmm. Now I was happy. I was friendly. I was day to day fine, but I'm only in the last couple of weeks or last couple of months really realizing how 
um, detrimental painting myself into a professional corner was hmm. for me personally. Hmm. I'm creative. I you know had a long background doing entertainment. I love being on stage. I love I love all that stuff. And yet, at some point during that time, probably because I tried to like play the role of like a seasoned business executive because oh my company was acquired and now there's conference rooms and now you have to go in there and there's 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 risk. I I. I really hid, hid myself away hmm. so that I could be perceived as like a real businessman an operational leader. And, and, and I, I, I did it, I think for good reasons, but it was definitely the wrong thing for me. Hmm. I did it so that the team could win. I did it for people that reported me could have more opportunities. I increasingly didn't have any contacts with our actual clients mm-hmm. and didn't have a creative role to play and was like, well, I'm doing it so that they would grow and have an opportunity. And, you know, and, and I'm not, I don't regret that because good things came out of it. People like Darnell and Caitlin and Lauren and all kinds of folks are, are super successful now and thrive because they had the autonomy and ability to go do that. Right. But it was to my detriment. And I was very, very deeply unhappy for a long time. Hmm. And the part of the reason I discovered that about myself is that earlier, you know, late last year, earlier this year, I had the realization that I had drank one plus drinks every single day for 2000 days with no exception. Wow. I just had to like, oh yeah. But you think, oh, pandemic, everyone drank and all that. But I was like, sure, no, no, sure. no, no, no. It goes back earlier. And, and if I was being honest with you and I'm being honest with my friends and my wife and my family now, yeah. I said, if I'm being truly honest, that was a coping mechanism for being unhappy at work. Hmm. I wasn't, I wouldn't call myself an alcoholic. I wasn't hiding it. It wasn't like causing me, I was high functioning. Yeah. And yet just on the health level, yeah, that's not a very healthy habit, <laughs> you know, just like health wise. Huh. And then if I, you know, again, if I'm being honest, ooh, that's a coping mechanism. So what was I coping with? Hmm. I was coping with deep sadness about who I, who I was perceiving myself to be, who I allowed other people to perceive me to be. I had awesome, you know, I had a family, I had good things happening at home, no doubt. So no problem. But all of that, and I felt like I was unhappy that couldn't voice it or didn't even have the words to voice it to people who did care about me. I didn't, I think I had good bosses that if I would be able to say this, they'd be like, hey, great, let me help you. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know how to say it. And it was out of some amount of guilt or shame or whatever of like, oh, McNair, you're, you have a great job and you, everything's looking mm-hmm. good for you and your company got acquired. Oh, you're hmm. unhappy? Cry me a river. Mm. And so mm. I had all those feelings wrapped up in there. I really didn't have anything to do with them. And it took me, I mean, the better part of a decade to realize. And so that's what I'm wrestling with now. And, I'm, I, am, and I am the freest and happiest and most open I've been in a decade. But it took me eight years to figure that out. Thank you for like, well, going there, I guess is the basic way to say it. I think that what you're hitting on is the hidden reality of so many people's lives, not just entrepreneurs and not just founders or business leaders or, but because I know that that's our core audience and I know how prevalent that can be for those individuals. I have, well, I have a ton of questions, but my curiosity, like even personally is like, if you were to try to have realized it back when it was happening, what practices like, how would, how would you have done that? Or what would you recommend to somebody now in retrospect, even though I know you're still, you're kind of going through it at the moment. Yeah. But I'm just, I'm just thinking like, 
if somebody wanted to course correct that and or at least come to the realization that it's happening. Yeah. Because it's kind of like one of those things that's like subliminal, right? It just kind of, it's like under the surface, you know, like that undercurrent, if you will. Yeah, um, sure. So I'm just curious. Um, I mean, the, probably the, the, the right answer, and I think I mostly agree with this, <laughs> is um, uh, the thing that was difficult for me almost the whole time of growing from, well, you know, once we got some traction and it was successful and, right. and you know, and it grew and then all of a sudden, like our monthly payroll was more than I had ever made in a year mm -hmm. myself. And I, you know, I'd play the, I'd play the game with uh, my wife, Katie, and I'd be like, Hey, guess how much money went out the door, uh, payroll this week. And I'd show her the number and she'd like fall on the floor. Um, because we got big, man. I mean, right. payroll for 150 people is no joke. I didn't have anybody except for Alan that I could talk about that stuff with. Hmm. There's almost nobody in my life that I could really talk about it with the, the real stuff of running a business and the size of it and all that. Not people, not my friends, although they loved me and supported me and would be fine with any of those conversations. I had positive support there. Not my family because they don't understand that. Mm -hmm. Not even Katie, really. Although, you know, we a little bit of that and not people at church. Like, not, I mean, I just, no one in my orbit had done this thing. Hmm. And so I guess my answer to you is that you got to find someone that you can talk to, whether it's an actual therapist or a business therapist, mm. you know, a coach or someone like that, just to right. say, hey, I just need someone I could talk to this stuff out with because I had not had that ever. Hmm. And I had to, I had to stumble onto that myself now. And now I feel like I have tons of people who I could just say this with because there's been some distance to it. And, you know, everybody knows like, Oh, you sold your company. Like, uh, okay, you, 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 you made life-changing money there. And that I always, I, I, I couldn't even have said that sentence that I just said mm. six years ago. Mm. Like, oh, people will think different of me because like I, they, they, they know that I did this and, oh, I, you know, I mean, and so there's this, there's this weird like guilt that I felt about the success that we had. And I found that like most people don't care and most people are happy for me. Hmm. You know what I mean? And so it's this interesting dynamic that I, I wrestled with in private for so long. And I think whether it's your business or not, or you have a, a job and you're finding success, there's a bunch of things going on underneath the surface. And I think corporate life, whether it's a stated value or an unstated value, tries to trim off the edges of creative people and make you conform. Mm -hmm. And especially in a creative business, that's especially detrimental. The more I tell the story to, the more people are like, Oh yeah, I totally feel that. Like I, I used to be like a bohemian, like, you know, whatever. And now I have to wear a button down suit to get respect at the office. And maybe that's true. I was writing a thing this morning about like, could I be a goofball on stage and be respected in, in the boardroom? And maybe the answer is no, but I wish I would have had more agency making the decision between the two than mm. just like acquiescing to what I felt was like cultural and kind of company pressures on me to conform in a certain way. And again, no one told me, hey, weirdo, like get in the corner, you, you, you jerk. Um, no one said that to me. I felt that and internalized it in a way that definitely wasn't healthy, whether it was real or not. Well, it's interesting to hear about that season for you, even being your 150th employee, right? And now I'm on like the other side of that equation. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking two things. One, about who those people are in my life that I can actually have at my disposal. And for example, there just by happenstance, I got connected with a group of 60 to 70 agency owners and maybe a handful of them. We have a Slack group, right? It's just, yeah. it, it's, it's virtual, but 
but I see them more often in person than you might think just by like I had breakfast with one of them two weeks ago and I'll see five of them next week at a conference. And um, yep. I've been shocked at how honest the conversations are uh, not about, I mean, yes, about business, like, okay, let me, you know, let me see your P and L and actually compare it to mine, you know, right. like that's what's right. super valuable. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but more so, Hey, did you know that I'm living paycheck to paycheck right now? Says one of them, or, mm -hmm. Hey, did you know that, um, I just had to let my most, you know, what, who I used to perceive my most important employee to be, and it was just devastating for my team or, mm -hmm. Did you know X, Y, or Z? And of course, I'm just making things up to keep things under wraps. But my, the amount that I feel seen and understood in those seasons is so helpful. However, it still requires a high level of intentionality and like internal challenge to build up this courage to actually join that conversation, right? Yeah. And because you... Whenever you're in that conversation, at least for me, the way that it feels is like I have so many thoughts going through my head that I'm worried that what I'm about to start saying to you will not make sense, <laughs> even though we have this shared context, right? Yeah. But Do you also feel in those contexts exposed. Yeah, like it feels like. Like the other day I was talking to a guy and I know this guy perceives me to be pretty successful and. I'm about to say something that's going to completely tear down his expectations. And it feels a little bit like, I don't know, like it, it just, you almost have like a physical reaction to it. And I'm like, why am I even telling you this? Is this true of you? Because this is true of me. I've spent my whole life chasing some version of success. Hmm. Hey, I want to do this thing. I want to be the best at it. I want to do this thing. I love standing up in front of people. I have this like, yeah. this energy of like, oh, I want to do that. I want to be successful. I want to. Um, make good money. I want to be respected. I want all of those things. And, and that's how I feel. And so when I hear you say that, I'm like, oh, that's exactly how you feel. Why, why would I tear myself down in front of other people that are respecting? I mean, for you, you're like, what, why would I tell someone that I'm not amazing when they think I'm like, I'm Sean from Mallard. I am the best. Why would I tear that down? I'm living the dream right now. Mm. But the reality is, is mm. that it's, it's much better. Mm to be open and honest about where you are and have catharsis with people hmm. than try to shine in their adulation. Totally. One of the things that you, that stuck out to me about what you were saying maybe five minutes ago or so was about your role within the company and how yeah. maybe that didn't align. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but the way I'm understanding it is that it maybe didn't align with, I'm going to say this and maybe butcher it, but kind of like almost who you are most naturally and or the things that you find most fulfilling and or the areas where you can most naturally and have the most impact in, in right. a way that feels most natural to you. Yeah. One, is that true? And, and two, what would your role have looked like if you were leaning into that? And I know you don't regret anything and I think that's admirable, but also I'm trying to almost navigate that in myself in thinking about right now I do a lot of sales. I do a lot of business management. I'm, I just delegated finance. Thank God. But, <laughs> but, yeah. but I'm like, what about that strategy that I see my team doing over there? And what about that X, Y, or Z in the business? And it's like, oh no, no, your role is this. And that's what you're best at because that's what every, that's what everybody tells you. And, or that's what the numbers say, right? Right. How do you break out of that? And should you even strategically speaking, and maybe through your personal experience, you might be able to lend some light. 
Well, maybe the right answer is that I, t I tell individuals like yourself or myself or anyone listening to take the same advice that we said about our agencies hmm. is that get brutal into the niche that you're the best at hmm. and cut away everything else. So for me, in retrospect, I should have let 10 other people be the operational leads and how the whole organization worked. Hmm. We had lots of people who were talented at it, cared about it had the good interpersonal negotiation skills, but it always had to ladder up to me because I was the person in charge of all the operational like hierarchy and rigor and how this thing was going to run and all that. I should have just let that go. I eventually got to let go of finances because we hired in, you know, really great people that, that ran that, especially after we got acquired. And so that was much more sophisticated than I could have been. So that was good. I didn't need to do. Uh, and so I, I wish in retrospect that I, well, the thing that I think we did really well growing as quickly as we did was just doing the osmosis of, hey, people around me, you get to see how I see, hear how I hear, talk how I talk, hear the rationale and how I make decisions and how I see situations and creative opportunities and all that. And so this is the, this is the slow movement of not just like training, oh, I read this book and then you'll see the thing. No, you just got to be around me and do all that. And we did a good job of that. Now, I think we did too good a job of it because at some point, like those teams didn't need me anymore or so mm -hmm. I thought. Mm -hmm. And I think in retrospect, it would have been better for me to say, hey, there's a bunch of places where you definitely don't need me anymore. Other people can be in charge of that. But the place I'm going to, I'm going to plant a flag and say, this cannot get away from me is creative ideation, creative expression, pushing ourselves to have bigger and wilder and more fanciful ideas about what we could do. Because I love that stuff. Mm. I actually think that, again, in retrospect, I think that's the place where our teams got dinged the most because eventually we were so big and so scaled is that the, the, the ideas that were big and unwieldy didn't have a place to live because they didn't fit in the playbook that we really ran well. Mm. And so, you know, I, I, I distinctly remember one of the, one of the most worst, worst, kindest, but worst pieces of feedback we got from a client. Do you remember George Dewey? He was at, he was at 20, 20th Century Fox. Yeah, that sounds familiar. No, I worked on the account, but. Yeah, now he's partners with Ryan Reynolds and runs all of Ryan Reynolds stuff. Mm -hmm. He was wonderful, is wonderful, super creative. And he pulled me and Alan in at one point. He said, listen, your team is the best. They're so nice. Anything they do that you can trust, it'll get done, right? Trustworthy, great. Mm -hmm. We definitely keep working with them. They're wonderful. Now, creative ideas. So the pitches we get from your team are either hey, let's do animated GIFs. Mm. Or our idea should be, let's take the cast of this movie and film them breakdancing on the roof of the White House with Beyonce and Obama. <laughs> the, those two extremes are not helpful. Uh -huh. So we've got to find a way to do something in the middle. And, and, and if I would like flashback quantum leap into myself, like, you know, back then, I would say, great, I take that feedback and I'm going to own it. I'm going to be the person who is responsible for not just me, but re rehabbing our culture into figuring out how to pitch creative ideas in such a way hmm. that comments like that never happened again. So I think that was my lane and that's my lane today in 2023. Hmm. I'm just trying to figure out where to place that. Wow. That's, that's so interesting. And how, what if just playing hypothetical here, cause sure. I'm, I'm in it and you're, well, I know you're in it too, but you're also looking at it retrospectively at the same yeah. time. What if the thing that you're best at is not what you love to do the most? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's that, it's that old idea of, you know, it's the, it's the Venn diagram of what are you best at? 
What do you uh, get joy or love doing? And what mm. will people actually pay you to do? Right. I mean, to, to his great credit, uh, over the last um, eight, nine months, Alan, who we, you know, we partnered up to make Synonymous, which was largely a technology play we wanted to build. And then we realized, oh, we're not technology guys. <laughs> and, and so we had to wind that part of the business down. But Synonymous still has a number of clients. But, you know, the last couple of months, as a result of Alan's pointed conversation to me saying, I think you're satisfied with what we're doing right now. Mm. And so he kept coming back to me with like, what do you love doing? I know the things you're good at. And so I can, I, you know, Alan says to me, I can speak to those. And what do you think people will pay you for? Hmm. And, and so what, what has happened? I don't know when this will launch because I haven't, we haven't announced this um, yet, but I've spun off a little group off of Synonymous to go run a couple of things. We're actually working with Pepperdine as one of our clients, small, small team of people. And they want me for me, my voice, my creativity, mm -hmm. my strategy, all that stuff and our small team. So that's going really, really well. And Alan's running Synonymous. And we have a group that we're, or a, a shared entity that's going to house our Mick Beard things. That's not Mick Beard, the agency. That's literally the Mick and the Beard, Alec McNair and Alan Beard, yeah. their shared thing. So we we're, so we're reframing our, our relationship right now, which is wonderful for both of us. Hmm. But he was asking, what do you love doing? What is effective? And what will people pay you to do? Yeah, totally. I, I feel like that's such a, that's a really good framework, right? Because it's, it can feel, it can feel challenging to even come up with the answer of <laughs> what am I best at? Then you actually have to go a, a level deeper and say, well, what do I love to do? And then it's even more challenging to say, what are people going to pay me for? And so, and then also how can you actually scale said thing and is scaling the right thing, right? Like, and yeah. that's actually a question that's been a new, an that's, that's, I had never considered that until six months ago, one of my mentors said, well, why do you just assume that scaling is the right thing to do? You know, what if you just did what you love to do? What if you just did what you were best at and that that was enough and you just operated in a way to where growth was not the end all be all. Um, mm, now, now, now we're really getting into it. Well, and, and I'll nitpick a word for you. Um, especially as a person who uh, is in the services business, um, like I have historically been and am today, there is no scale in the traditional sense of that word. There's mm -hmm. growth and there's marginal growth, but mm -hmm. there's no scale. I would say to you and say to myself, you can have a good outcome if you sell a sizable service business, but there's not scale. That comes from you know things that actually have, a, have an exponential growth. That's software, SaaS, media, like all those, you know, product, all those mm -hmm. things. But in the services business, there isn't scale. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things Al and I had to wrestle with, and this is how we actually grew, is when we were coming up and we, oh, okay, we have like a dozen people now. There were a lot of agencies in Hollywood that had, were founded by a, a really strong creative director and they all topped out at like 20 people. Yep. They could not get bigger than that. Mm -hmm. If the creative director had to touch everything. Mm-hmm. Cause you can't scale that you, you can't even grow that because right. you only have you're limited by the, the constraints of that person's time right and so you know at the time we're like wow we shouldn't do that look at all the opportunity that people are coming at us we're like there's throwing business at us we'd be mm. dumb not to do this and so we did the thing that ultimately led to my unhappiness me being removed from the work so that was that was you know the devil's bargain that we took to say hey we'll take growth and more money and eventually a, a good exit for my unhappiness and would I do it the same way? I might. Huh. 
I, I would not, but, and I, and so I would, I, I certainly wouldn't advise people to not do that, hmm. but I think there's definitely a culture now, especially on things you see online of like, hold up, could you just run a small business with like three people, one person plus contractors, whatever, doing the thing you love and make, I don't know, $250,000 a year mm -hmm. forever. Yeah. Well, that's a great life. Right. And so what do you want to do? And, you know, mm. I, was, I was meeting with a McBeard person yesterday who transitioned to a lower stress job recently who has two young kids. And he's like, honestly, I don't even think about my job as like I used to. I'm just happy to be home, to be around with my kids. And that will be true forever. But for right now, it's mm. really important. That's awesome. Yeah. And so there's just something in the water right now where people are having this conversation, which is, which is great. And I'm happy mm. to add my two cents into it. It's hard for me to like say what people should do from my ivory tower of like, oh, great. You sold your company. Now I tell people you shouldn't do that, you know, but you know, all I can do is tell my story and how I lived it and, uh, and go from there. Wow. Well, this is my favorite hour that I've had in a long time. I, I sorry, mean, rest of your team that you brainstormed with today. You guys can suck it. I'm going to go back now and fix everything I messed up earlier today. <laughs> Just totally. kidding. I'll give myself some grace and we'll, we'll wait till tomorrow. Alec, I can't thank you enough for, well, more so notably your like sustained leadership in my life, but, but even this conversation today ladders into that. And I'll, I'll say thank you for a lot of other people that I know personally as well, who feel the exact same way about you. And I just want to say that I see your particular skill set and I really recognize that it's unique and I am excited to watch you continue, continue to use that as you step into this next chapter. And thanks for everything you've done in the previous chapter that's made a difference for me. Oh, thanks. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I think that of all the accolades and all the awards and all the money and all the good stuff that happened, that I am obviously super um, grateful for. The thing I'm most grateful for from our McBeard years is to have played a role in people like yourself going from your first or second job at a, at a school in the industry mm -hmm. and actually building a career for yourself that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise. And so to the extent that's true and I played a part in that, I'm super proud of that. It is, yeah, it, it's more true than you probably even know. Uh, but I, th I know that there's hundreds of other people who feel this way, but my company would not exist. That's just the, that's just the gosh darn truth. And you could ask my team, I talk about McBeard all the time. And there's a good reason for that. It's because of your leadership and also the leadership of a lot of other people that had jobs because of that initial impetus and I'm thankful for it. Well, everybody, thanks so much for listening to this episode. A little longer than normal, but it's worth it, as you now know. I really hope that you all will follow along with both myself and Alec. Definitely follow Alec on LinkedIn. His writing is a can't-miss event. <laughs> and would love for you to follow along with myself and Mallard as well. Subscribe to this podcast, and we'll see you next time.